0: Managing type 1 diabetes can be difficult and challenging. Today, a management revolution is underway that can help us all live happier and healthier lives. I'm Cliff Sherb, founder of Glucose Advisors. I'll be sitting down with expert guests exploring topics in the advancements of the science of diabetes management, their personal type 1 diabetes stories, and details of the latest methods to help take control of T1D. We hope these stories inspire you to take control of your diabetes, health, and well-being. Learning more about the advancements that exist to live a better life with T1D. So welcome, Dr. Sherry, uh, to the podcast, to the Advisor's Podcast here. I would like to uh, say thanks so much for coming on, and I'd like to give a little bit of background about uh, our, our guest today. So Sherry is the author, and she's a lecturer, uh, consultant, professor, uh, researcher, exercise physiologist, and expert on diabetes and exercise. And she has an MBA degree from Stanford University, uh, from the University of California, Davis, and PhD from Cal Berkeley. She specialized in the research studies on diabetes and exercise and aging. healthy lifestyles she has authored 12 books over 400 articles and 31 book chapters on physical activity diabetes healthy lifestyles nutrition successful aging and much much more uh welcome sherry uh to the podcast thanks so much for being on
1: thanks so much for inviting me on clip
0: yeah it's uh it's great to have you on here i I read a quote i really enjoyed from uh, your website it says What's the point of living longer if you can't live well and feel your best every day of your life? I love it
1: that's exactly how I feel um you know and let me tell you where that started um I, I've had diabetes from a really young age I was diagnosed when I was four years old in nineteen sixty eight and I remember back then there were no blood glucose meters there really was um, ineffective ways to manage diabetes. My mother uh, was told to ha- start me out on one shot a day. Um, they were inferior insulins, obviously. Um, I, but I didn't have a glucose meter to test anyway. There was urine testing, which always you know, it boiled bright orange telling you that your glucose was high four hours ago. <laughs> and uh, really not very effective at all. Um, And I remember thinking um, in high school, reading all about the complications and stuff and that I was going to die from diabetes before I made it through high school. And so I I harbored that belief for a long time. Um, And it took actually getting into my 20s, getting my first meter. And it was very interesting. I think I was uh, 22 when I got my first meter. And so I went all those years where I learned how to eat, I basically gravitated towards lower glycemic index foods, um, just because sure. the eating yeah, the other stuff made me feel so gross, um, so bad. You know mm-hmm. how you feel when your glucose shoots up quickly? You're just like, ugh. Um, so I already adopted better eating and and everything. Um, exercise it was always a part of my life. I was just active as a kid and always doing stuff, and then. I tried participating in a whole bunch of sports in, in high school, but you can imagine without having a meter, I, I didn't do them extremely effectively. Um, I did gymnastics. I did swimming, um, volleyball. And I kind of ended up just with a couple years of soccer and was always doing stuff on my own. But I, I always felt like it made me feel so much better. And even though I still thought I was going to die from diabetes before I made it out of high school. <laughs> so... Uh, you know, here I am, oh boy, how many years later, uh, almost 40 years out of high school, that would be, let's see, yeah, this year would be my 40th reunion, so I guess I've made it a little bit past then, but <laughs> it was, it was just scary, and um, when I was doing my my master's work, my grandmother, who had type 2 diabetes, they diagnosed her as, as borderline, they didn't really ever say she had it because that's just the way they did it then the of you know, the, the criteria were different but she was the only person i knew who had diabetes and sure. when i was in my 20s she started having cardiovascular problems she had um basically she had a, a major heart attack when she hit the age of 70 and then when she was 72 when i was in a master's student she had a major stroke which she survived, but not well, and then a series of strokes, more and more strokes, and she spent the last five or six years of her life in bed, bedridden, you know, really unable to communicate or feed herself or or anything, and had partial amputations of both legs, and I remember that that really affected me and I was telling you that I didn't get to go scuba diving because I got kicked out of a a class that was a NAWI certification back then and that's right when she had her stroke and I thought. This is it my my life is over this is going to happen to me, but then I really thought. What I really want to do is not have this happen to me. I want to be as healthy as I can be that right. I'm alive. And what do I need to do to do that? Once I had a meter, at least I had a tool. You know, I, I'm one of those people that's just so grateful to be able to test to know what I am, even you know, if I don't know what I am every five minutes. I mean, it's it, <laughs> just yes, it, you try going 18 years without a meter and having diabetes and you're just grateful to be able to know. And it's incredible,
0: right, how far we've come in yeah. the technology and and the space and and you and I were talking just before this about, you know, just just what what those transitions have looked like and how exceptional, you know, life has become for us as type 1s and and certainly, uh, but, you know, we're, we're definitely living proof that you can have a very high quality of life. And I think one thing that you and I both share is uh, this this affinity for being active in a healthy, ath- you know, athletic lifestyle effectively.
1: Yeah. You know, I noticed that even when I was a kid, I would just feel so much better when I was physically active. And what I didn't know then was that you can lower your blood glucose naturally by being active. And so that's probably why I feel so much better. And I felt more in control, even though I didn't know how well I was doing. I mean, I was probably running 200 all the time, 300 all the time. I, <laughs> you know, it's just, how was I to know? Um, You know, you were more worried about at that point of uh, not getting low than you were about running a little high. You just learned to yeah. function. with that. So, um but do you, you think know, on my some level-
0: sorry do do you think on some level that uh some of your exploration early years was to help you know you know figure out your own condition and to stay healthy and and then that you were able to translate that into something more or less that you loved and and research it and and share it with others through your writing
1: well i i think it yes that that's definitely it i remember i went and spent part of one summer with my grandmother i think i was 13 or 14 and i Already knew then it was good to be active and but she she was always overweight and was always on a diet so she was on a diet when i was there that summer weight watchers i think and i i don't even know how this came about but i remember i worked out a deal with her that i would help her lose weight i would help her follow her diet and she would pay me a, a dollar for every pound that she lost now granted <laughs> this is back in the 1970s so in um, the very first week I was there, I, I remember I had her running laps around her backyard. I was helping her measure out her cottage cheese and things that they allowed her to eat on her diet. And in that very first week, she lost eight pounds. So I got $8 and, and believe me, that was a lot of money back then. So I I would laugh and say, well, that's why I got into it. Obviously look (laughs) how well I got paid, helping coach my grandmother lose weight and be more healthy with diabetes. So yeah. Um,
0: that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I think I, I, I crashed into it more accidentally, just wanting to, uh, you know, show diabetes, who was really the boss. And, and and a lot of it, I call the early years were crash and burn, just, you know, highs, lows all the time. And, and then in my uh, 20s, I really refined the approach and into my 30s uh, extensively. So but, I, and, and all along the way, right, it was um, trying to overcome something. But f- for one of the things that I, I find interesting, you know, research and, and learning and, and taking on, um, you know, this type of uh, endeavor has taught a lot of things to me, certainly um, in, in that advice that you give. What have you learned about general health from type ones that benefits everybody? Cause you had some insight into this and I thought it was very interesting.
1: Well, I, um, in 2007, I did a, a book um, that basically was named the 50 secrets of the longest living people with diabetes based on another 50 secrets book that that publisher had in its series. Um, and basically when I interviewed more than 50 people who had lived a really long time with type 1 diabetes, and at that time, the longest living person was this name, a woman named Gladys Dole, who um, was from Walla Walla, Washington. And she lived for 83 years with type 1 diabetes. So like she started mm-hmm. taking insulin like the, the year it was commercially available wow. um, when she was seven years old. And she and all the other ones I interviewed, um, you know, when it came to physical activity, they all agreed that it was important and it was helpful. And even if they weren't athletic, in they were all active. Like they all did stuff on a daily basis. They didn't just sit around and do nothing. They all did activity. And I remember asking another guy who was uh, in his late 80s at the time, and then and between him and his brother, they'd had diabetes like 157 years between them. He was hmm. diagnosed at age seven, and his brother got it at like 13 back in the you know 19 early 1930s. Um, and I asked him, what do you think, you know, of, of all the things that would be most important, what's the most important thing? And he's go- he goes, I think being physically active is probably the the reason I've lived the longest. I, I felt like jumping through the phone and kissing him and saying, that's the right answer. You, you know, I didn't prep him or anything. And he just told me that that was what it was. Now, obviously there are other things that go along with that. Like you really have to manage your, your eating. Um, there have been people who exercise excessively and still die from a heart attack because genetics and <clears throat> poor diet and all that stuff. So I mean, you kind of have to look at it in totality. What are the things that, that you have to do to live long and well, and, and basically what you have to do to live long and well with type one diabetes, the same things that allow you to live long and well, whether you have diabetes or not. So they're really not different. (laughs) So, yeah,
0: it's interesting. Maybe a lot, a lot of type ones will be living uh, certainly longer and maybe even healthier lives than, than most, uh not non-diabetics in the future but um, I'm not sure who's authorizing that study but uh, I I certainly uh, see a lot of type ones who who take the path of you know taking care of themselves and being active and granted I'm in a smaller circle of people who take care of themselves sometimes but I I think it is uh, it's it's a nice corollary to see people that are vested in their diabetes management also you know do well through activity vis-a-vis right. Yeah, so this is the this is a point where I ask you. I say, what are the three things from your experience, right, that you think every T one D should know, and why, in terms of things that can help now and in the future in your management?
1: Well, I, I guess the 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 one I always bring up, if you know, I, I've written columns about like the five things people really should know with the, about type one diabetes and exercise, is that. Um, You know, being active by itself, is kind of like its own dose of insulin because the the way that the human body works is that you have both um, insulin dependent and insulin independent ways that you can take blood glucose and move it out of the blood and into active muscles or wherever else you need to use it. Um, But interestingly, muscle contractions by themselves um, allow us to to take up like glucose. That's, that's no insulin. So, you know, the good thing and the bad thing, the good thing is that you can take up glucose without insulin. The bad thing is if you have too much insulin in your system and you're exercising, that's when you drop <laughs> because yeah. you've got now two mechanisms that they know, they did a bunch of studies back in the 90s that they're actually additive. They're separate mechanisms, but additive. So, Exercise plus insulin means you're more likely to get low when you're exercising, um, so that that's kind of a key one that you have this mechanism that you can use. You just have to learn how to use it, when to use it, but always keep in mind that, you know, if you spike a little bit after a meal, where uh, you're just high some other time, as long as you don't have a lot of ketones, if you you're just active, moderately active, you can help bring your glucose back down all by yourself without yeah, insulin. Yeah, that's
0: a good one. That's a very good one. One that I I reference a lot too, and I, I like the idea of also bringing high blood sugars down moder- moderately. Ones with um, a little bit of activity.
1: Yeah. So the second point I guess would be kind of related to that because <laughs> if your exercise intensity is really high, you can actually make your glucose go up instead of mm. down. And again, mm-hmm. I'm an exercise physiologist, so this is a this is basic exercise physiology. When you do a really intense activity, you get a big release of glucose-raising hormones. Now, because of the body is, this shows you how important it is to raise glucose as opposed to lower it. We have five hormones that work, it one way or another to help raise blood glucose, and we have one that lowers it. So insulin's the only thing that lowers it. But we have five that raise it because mm-hmm. it's so important for us to not have our glucose go too low. We can't fu- function if it does. Um, but it, when you do really intense exercise, you get an exaggerated release of those glucose-raising hormones, and that can cause you to go up. If you do CrossFit training, or you do sprinting, or you just do a really hard workout, or heavy weights, or you know any of those actually can can cause your glucose to go up instead of down. So that's yep. good to know yeah. and understand so that you can do what you need to do to, to manage it better. Um, I know I've seen a lot of stuff recently about people saying, oh, you know, I I don't like to get low while I'm exercising, so I always exercise first thing in the morning because I know my insulin levels are lowest then, and that is true, but on the other hand, because your insulin levels are so low, you don't really have anything to counterbalance the release of these glucose-raising hormones, and a lot of times that will make you, your glucose go up, and it'll make you Mm -hmm. insulin-resistant, um, so it really is an individual thing What people choose to do that or not. I, I hate to exercise in the morning when I don't have enough insulin on board because then it takes me hours hours to get it back under control. Um, and if you play the game like, well, okay, I'll take half my normal insulin and then I'll see how that goes. Well, you know, sometimes you get low, sometimes you don't. And you know, so it's kind of tricky. Um, so it's a personal choice there if you really want to do that early morning exercise. And then the, Third pearl I would say is that, you know, you'll hear a lot of people talk about, oh, I've got this tool, I've got CGM, I've got an insulin pump, I'm looping, I'm doing this. And then I know a lot of people don't have access to these things and I don't want them to feel like that they still can't manage their diabetes without all these special tools because you can. Um, I've actually tried a lot of these things and um, I, I'm, I'm still pretty low tech. Um, I think that things are moving in the direction of, of insurance actually wanting people to use CGM instead of, you know, multiple daily testing regimens or uh you know, really is gonna vary on what you want to do, but I just want to let people know that they they can manage it no matter what sure. tools they have available. All you need is a blood glucose meter and and some insulin, and you could still manage it. You don't have to have the latest tech, you don't have to you know, hawk your house to try to pay for it. You don't have to cry (laughs) because you can't get it. Um, You can still do it. I mean, my A1Cs have been consistently, I know a lot of people get really low, but mine have been probably around six um, for the last, oh, ever since I've had a meter. Um, Yeah. And I used a pump for four years and then I just got too much scar tissue and then that was even, that was harder. I've known people have used pumps and then actually, give a basal insulin as well, because they just don't like you not having basal on. You know,
0: there. we so, we uh, spent a lot of time when we designed our, our programs at Glucose Advisors to to basically work with and sync up with anybody's regimen, because I do think that at the end of the day, there's a, a mode for each person, a pump or MDI, MD, M- MDI, sorry, that, you know, it works better for some people and not for others. And so, you know, um, you can have a great a1c with or without you know this technology and um you know depends on your lifestyle right and and i think that that's the important factor there is trying to understand the moving parts as best you can um some things are moving faster than others when you eat something or when you're getting up and you're going for a walk or like you said is it very high intense activity or is it low intense because those have different meanings and then how do you apply that to your lifestyle and you know going going uh high tech or low tech is uh irrelevant it's it's quality of life um i i think it's yep. it, it di- it's it also dives the, the same yeah. uh,
1: i would have to say when it comes to, to dietary choices as well yeah. because i have um you know for the last time i wrote my book um athletes guide to diabetes this one i um i had over 300 people um tell me what they do. And I would say maybe a third really were really truly low carb. And then a third of them were kind of moderate carb intake, which is where I throw myself in that because I just, I, there are lots of carbs I avoid. I've always avoided because they, you know, that pre meter time, they would just make me feel so crappy. So, yeah. um, you know, and then there are people that just have no restrictions whatsoever. And all of them were able to manage their diabetes one way or the other, um, some better than others. But I, I don't think there's a magic answer there either um, in terms of what you don't have to be on a keto diet. You don't have to uh, be on an um, eat whatever you want diet. I mean, there there's probably a place for uh, some kind of carbohydrate moderation in almost everybody with diabetes, just simply because that's going to have the biggest impact on your glucose. But then, yeah, you know, a lot of times people would say, oh, I'm on, yeah, I'm on a low carb diet. And then they'd be like, yeah. And I eat this many olives a day and this many, well, olives actually have carbs in them. If you add up all the times that they had to treat a low with glucose or whatever, they, they actually aren't as low carb as they thought they were. Mm-hmm. You know, Avocados have carbs in them too. So do vegetables. They're just mm-hmm. not like at them in terms of, they're just saying, I don't eat starchy foods. So you know, they're just saying they're low carb. So they, the definitions are, are not clear. But again, you can make anything work for you. And I don't think you should feel bad just because you're not doing whatever the latest thing is. Right. I actually at my university, uh, I taught uh, nutrition as well as actually physiology uh, for 19 years. So I saw in those two decades, every dietary trend come and go, every diet sure. come and go, the pendulum swinging from, hey, good, fat is bad to carbs is bad, to let's all eat high <laughs> protein. To, and where have I been this entire time? Kind of firmly in the middle, which is like you know, half my plate's green veggies, and then the other half is split between some kind of a carb source and a protein source thing, you know, however, and that's how I was taught to eat back in 1968.
0: Yeah. <laughs> um, it kind of stuck
1: with me. And I saw something today too, about people are trying to go back to just low carb, because that's how they used to treat diabetes before there was insulin. But I don't think you have to do that. In fact, there are some, some problems that I've noticed. Again, I think I've tried every insulin known to man since you know the 1960s but the the problem with the, the insulin analogs we have now that are rapid acting or super rapid acting is that they cover carbs pretty effectively but they don't cover the glucose that arises later from protein being fully digested and the energy sure. that you may get from fat and, and so fat, you end up. Right. Um, and years ago, I, I always knew that it, was, it wasn't just the carbs that affected me, it was other stuff. And then they finally did some series of studies in the last decade or so where they showed that how much fat you have with your carbs makes an impact and so forth. And so you kind of have to look at it in totality and think about what, what kind of insulin, what your coverage is going to be. Maybe you'll have to dose again after two hours because you have a lot of protein or That's right. It's, so that's why I'm saying anything can work because the, even the insulins we have nowadays don't work. may work well for certain types of carbs. They don't work well for low glycemic index carbs. They work well for things that are absorbed rapidly, which I don't normally eat anyway. So
0: I've actually <laughs> had a
1: harder time with some of the modern insulins than I had with the older ones. That with Yeah, I would, kind of cover I would say the, that
0: I could see that. And and we do see that uh, with our, our patients that we work with too. And one of the challenges is uh, you know, are you uh, gonna let like a, a closed loop mop up in the background and fix that for you? Are you going to entertain the, the bolus for the protein and the fat? Are you gonna, for instance, say, well, I'm gonna bolus at 50% for protein and maybe 20% for fat? And, you know, how am I going to administer that? Am I going to extend a bolus? Am I, you know, on MDI and I don't really have much to, to change? And so maybe my my Lantus dose is kind of actually a little inflated to capture some of that. So there's so many different strategies that it really comes down to a case-by-case basis and what you're most comfortable with, I think. Absolutely. Yeah.
1: I fully agree with that. Having tried a lot of different insulin regimens too, that you have to adjust. There's a learning curve with every single one of them and you have to adjust based on, what you're doing, you know your stress level, how much exercise you're getting or not getting consistently. If anything else is going on, if you get sick, if you change your eating style, you know, there's just so many variables that one, yeah. Yeah,
0: one, one of the things I'd be curious your thoughts on this, and and uh, in, in my research and what I've done with different people throughout the years is we look at the a 48 hour rolling average of food and activity to, together, and we. Flex the baseline basal dose, if you will, up or down based upon the individual's lifestyle. So it's much more like shifting bike gears. Like a lot of patients will have pretty much one gear that they use, or that gear has bigger cogs on it and smaller, all on one gear, though. And so it's like one day is just kind of changing different parts of the day. But in reality, you have shifting. Uh, lifestyle, you know, relationships where you're more active or less active, or you're high carb or you're low carb, and so uh, the the challenge is right. You go to your endocrinologist and they give you one basal or maybe it's two to work with, but in reality, there's really like four or multiple patterns that you're putting into your pump. And so, you know, we when we have people come on, I, I try to say, well, what's your lifestyle like? What are your goals? How do you see that working for people that? Um, you know certainly if you're more basic in your in your knowledge it may not work so well but um, you know have you ever experienced anything like that
1: uh, well if you're asking me if my endo has told me what to do no they they just say <laughs> just try to stay out of your way
0: <laughs> they say Sherry what are you doing <laughs> you tell us <laughs>
1: Yeah, they're like, you know what you're doing so much better. Um, yeah, you just tell us what you're doing. And I tell them, what I, or I'll say, yeah, hey, I want to try this. And they're like, OK. Um, you know, I just need them to write prescriptions for me. But um, I'm not sure what your question was in there, what I'm supposed to answer. But what comes yeah, to more, mind Yeah, is-
0: More so an observation of um, the, the, the strategies we use today right, are, revolve around a 24-hour period. But in reality, oh, yeah, right, yeah. it should revolve so I, around yeah, our I, lifestyle. I,
1: I, I totally agree with that that you you know, um, I, I've also been involved with writing a lot of the uh, exercise recommendations um, in terms of how often, how much, whatever, for people with diabetes for both the American Diabetes Association and the American College of Sports Medicine. And um, the one thing that we conclude looking at all the research is that you know, if you have diabetes, particularly type two, but also type one, it's better if you're consistent with your exercise. Like, um, One of the recommendations that came out in 2018 from the Federal Guidelines for Physical Activity uh, actually said, as long as you're getting the recommended number of minutes per week, which is 150 to 300 minutes moderate or 75 to 150 minutes a week of vigorous or a combination thereof, that you could do it all on the weekend. It's fine, you could be a weekend warrior, you're still getting it in, you get the health benefits from it. But we say, wait a minute, wait a minute, you hmm. have diabetes? No, mm-hmm. <laughs> you can't <laughs> let more than uh, two days lapse in between you know, your workouts because yeah. It has to the the insulin sensitivity changes a whole lot. You're you know as far as aerobic exercise, you're as good as your last bout that you did, and it may last yeah. for two hours or seventy up to seventy two hours, but it ain't gonna last long for a week until you be a weekend warrior. And with resistance training, the impact immediately is is different because a lot of that comes from gaining or, or retaining muscle mass and that that sort of aspect, but. So that can have a, a good effect overall in terms of making you more insulin sensitive, gives you more place to store glucose in your muscles because your muscles are bigger. But you still can't go uh, that many days without or, or your, your insulin regimen. Your insulin needs change dramatically. So you know, if you know you're going to have to take three days off, you're going to have to make some changes what yeah. you know, I always I say my insulin set for me to be active the days I have to make the most changes are days that I'm not active <laughs> which isn't very often but yeah um you know it, it it really helps to be consistent but it doesn't have to be the same exercise every day it just you, you need to be active on days where you can't do your planned activity you just try to stand up walk around more take more daily steps whatever the thing to just keep moving because that has a big impact on how well you're yeah
0: involved. it it definitely keeps the dosing more simplistic and if you're going to have that varied of a lifestyle you most certainly have to have bigger and smaller days of total daily dose and you know your your regimen has to change accordingly with the IC ratios and things like that but uh, I I have mapped out personally and with others you know a lot of this uh, more sedentary and more highly you know um, uh, engaged active lifestyles, and I, I agree. The consistency makes life a lot more easy. And and if you're eating consistently too, that also makes things a lot better. Uh, one of the strategies that I like a lot, uh, I, I I would highly doubt you're not an advocate of it, but eating a larger carb meal, particularly after being active, right, because of that sensitivity, which helps replenish glycogen and restores balance to the body and blood sugar stability too. So. Um,
1: well, that is true, but another strategy is say you want your insulin sensitivity to stay higher for longer after you've worked out. If you don't eat a lot of carbs after, yeah, it takes sure. you a lot longer to restore mm-hmm. the glycogen, and you will mm-hmm. stay lower for longer. Now, that can be a good thing or a bad thing. I mean, no. bad if you don't have the glycogen restored for your next workout, but good if right. you know you're going to be uh, inactive for the next two days. Then, hey, that's one way to deal with it. Sometimes, if I'm just having an insulin resistant day for some reason, I'll just, I'll just skip carbs for a meal and I won't, I'll eat other stuff. And it's like, it fixes it. So yeah. Because it, what you do is you have a finite amount of space in which you can store glucose in your muscles. Um, some of goes in your liver as well. And that gets kind of used and replaced on a daily basis. But your muscles, once the I would say think of it, your muscles as being like a glucose storage tank. So it's like a gas tank, you're going to put carbs into it. And you want to have that gas tank for carbs as large as possible. That means gaining muscle, retaining muscle. And then you always want it to be partway empty. Because when you have more carbs come into your body, they need to go into storage. Um, And if it's full up, they're not going in there. So then they get converted into something else or your glucose goes really high or you get fatter or something, you know?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I I see all of the same and we chart and track a lot more with the total daily dose. I think that that's a nice thing. You know, if you're, if you're listening to this podcast and you're thinking, you know, what do I do with that total daily dose at the end of the day? That's your over under and you kind of look at it and you say, well, am I? you know, close to the average I am for the last two weeks, or am I higher, or am I lower, and you can make some some real good decisions based on that. So if you're, if you're higher than your your average total daily dose, right, you may need to increase your, your total insulin intake, or maybe you want to eat a little bit lower carb. If you're conversely a little bit below your total daily dose, right? It's helpful to lower your your basal a little bit to accommodate that and you know maybe you need to watch going hypoglycemic overnight or things like that. So uh, lots of different tricks that you can do, but uh, there, there's lots of variability when it comes to um, regimens and, and nutrition, right?
1: Absolutely. I wanted yeah. to mention one other thing that's come up a lot with athletes. I remember there was a woman who was training for, who knew there was a, a national handball team, but the, there well, actually it was an Olympic handball team. She was uh, an athlete with type one who was on that team, and she just kept saying, "I, you know, she's training, doing all this training, heavy training, but she's gaining weight. And it's not, it's not like you know, good weight. It's you know, mm. more around her middle and stuff. And she was wondering what the heck's going on. I'm like, well. um are you treating a lot of lows? She's like, yeah. I'm like, well, you know, those calories count, right? (laughs) Calories are calories. If you're treating a lot of lows, it can make you gain weight. So then you need to adjust your insulin down.
0: Yeah, no, that's, that's very true. And, you know, there, there are periods of the time in the, you know, you want to have a low amount of insulin on board. That's when your body can mobilize fat the best. And if you're constantly pumping in additional insulin that you you just frankly don't need at times or if you haven't created some a lot of amount of sensitivity to allow for a lower you know suppression of insulin then the challenge is you, you will gain weight or you or you'll find it difficult at least to lose weight and so we see that right more traditionally with people who are on longer acting insulins and such
1: right yeah because insulin does not does it promote the uptake of, of like glucose it promotes the uptake of um, amino acids and fat right. into your fat cells
0: Right. So I listen, Sherry, I could sh- talk to you all day long. Uh, you're fascinating and, and interesting in terms of everything you've done in your research and your history. And uh, I, I'm, I wanted to say thank you for coming on to the podcast, but I do have a couple closing thoughts from questions for you. So one of them is from our community here. And that is uh, what was your biggest aha moment, if you will, in T1D as, as a doctor and a researcher?
1: You mean a personal one or a research one? Yeah, could one? Um,
0: be both, either one.
1: It was actually, <laughs> when I got, I, I mean, I went through most of my childhood knowing I had diabetes, I had to manage it as best I could without a meter and stuff. And then when I got my first meter, I actually went through this, this whole emotional struggle of like, oh my God, I have diabetes. <laughs> 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 like I had to deal with it. All over again, like a lot of people do when they're first diagnosed. But I did it after, you know, 18 years when I first got my first meter. So whatever I thought I'd been doing that that worked, I found out it didn't, it wasn't working the way I thought it was working. <laughs> um then I just found the the um magic of being able to actually test your glucose. And then it was like trying to learn, well, now what do I do? I adjust my insulin. How do I adjust my insulin? I mean, it's everything's a learning curve. So, and don't expect everything to stay the same. So that was that was my first aha uh, moment, I guess. Um, yeah,
0: that, that, those are those are pretty darn good insights. Yeah, and and uh, one last question for you, and that is, um, what are your professional goals you would have? You'd say for twenty twenty one, and what's in store for you?
1: Well, um, I. I have to write uh, a number of book chapters that I already committed to. I'll be up to, I know you said I'd written 31, but I think I'm up to 43 now. So uh, these are a lot of them for textbooks and for um, journal book type books and stuff. You know, they're not necessarily for consumers, but um, once I get done with those, I'm I'm hoping to expand out the courses I offer. Um, I have some now that are mainly uh, towards people who are uh, fitness professionals to teach them more about diabetes and working with people who have diabetes or prediabetes. just because I've seen too many trainers actually mm. injure people or do things that would be inappropriate for sure, somebody sure. with diabetes to do. Um, sure, sure. I'm also gonna, I think, expand that out to work with um, through a program that, that does continuing education for athletic trainers and um, maybe some uh, physical therapists, because all these people work with people who have diabetes all the time. Yeah. And I just, I don't want them to do anything injurious to, to someone else because they of lack of knowledge. So my, my goal is just to keep empowering people with knowledge as best I can. So yeah, that's kind of where I'm headed.
0: Yeah, we'll keep up the great work. It's, uh, it, you have great books, great articles. It's just exciting. I, I appreciate you coming on. And um how would you like people to get in touch with you uh best um if they have questions and they want to get in touch
1: um if they go to my website my main website's just uh sherrycolberg.com uh there is a contact page and they can just send me an email and i'll through that and then i'll i'll be able to respond to it or you can just google me and you'll find my my email online anyway (laughs) so whatever works
0: Okay, great. Well, Sherry, thanks so much for being on the podcast, and uh, we'll be in touch again soon, but thanks again.
1: Thanks. Go get active.
0: (laughs) Thanks for listening to the Glucose Advisors podcast. For more episodes, visit our community at GlucoseAdvisors.com. Learn from our team of advisors and find out more about space available in our programs. Head on over to Spotify, Apple Music, or wherever you find your podcast to rate, subscribe, or leave a review. Until next time, take control, stay inspired, and live a better life with T1D.